Um, so today we're talking to Kath Muller of Radical Roots and um, various other things. And um, so, hi, Kath. Um, hi. So we want we want to help build the new non-extractive economy. And I know that you've always worked in that yep. economy. Um, what what sort of things have you done? Oh, uh, well, I guess I started by fighting it. I started by uh, being part of uh, Earth First, which was an um, eco-defense direct action, still is, sorry, eco-defense direct action movement. Um, and that was really my introduction to politics and economics, because before I understood what the system was, I could see oh my goodness, we're destroying the world. And I got involved in things that tried to stop destroying the world. Um, but it became apparent very quickly that the, um, the forces of capitalism really uh, create a, a narrative that's around domination and individualism and um, making as much as you can out of everything and everyone around you in order to create your own security through money rather than trying to create the security of living collectively and in tune with nature. So what that led to was an understanding that we have to find other ways of living, uh, other ways that are not capitalistic, that are not individualistic and that are uh, ecologically sustainable. To me, that meant having control and uh, resilience or self-sufficiency for communities over how they meet their needs um, and uh, ways of working non-hierarchically that embed a, a collective ethos. Like, we, we really are all in it together and, and being at the expense of anyone else will make our organisation weaker. I've been particularly interested in non-hierarchical and collective organizations for that reason. Yeah. Um, combined with um, a sustainable approach uh, that's not just about the organization, but it's about its, its impact on the wider world and on the communities uh, that it, it works with, whether they're customers or whether they're neighbors or whether they're yeah. suppliers. Yeah. And what sort of organizations have you worked for and what sort of things have you done? It started early on with, with, moving into Cornerstone Housing Cooperative, um, living communally with... Um, and that's in Leeds, that's in Leeds, sorry. Cornerstone is in Leeds. Yeah. And I've lived there since 1994. We have two houses and there's 14 people all together. Um, and I, it creates something that I think is really important to understand about collective initiatives which is that because we live closely we share a lot of stuff and that actually creates surplus for us so as individuals we wouldn't be able to live in such beautiful housing uh, we wouldn't have been able to afford it but as but together we can and we have big lounge and a big kitchen and big gardens um, as individuals probably we'd have to eat much cheaper food than collectively with bulk buying we can buy we get organic veg boxes and and yeah, delicious yeah. bread um which it means that we can 
not have to work all the time we pay a reasonable rent and we have low living costs so that means that we don't have to have 40 hour a week jobs to maintain that lifestyle yeah um and then beyond that uh we started footprint workers court which is a printing business in the, the cellar printing. of cornerstone and we started that in around 2000 we started trading in 2000 and this surplus comes into it again cornerstone is a big house that has big sellers and that means that footprint has existed in the cellar of cornerstone all that time without having to pay rent and again because the business is based in the cellar of cornerstone and cornerstone doesn't need income that means we don't have to pay so hard to pay rent for the business so again this surplus that has been created by sharing space means that we all have more time that we're not just working for capitalism uh, both of those housing the housing corp and the workers corp are members of radical roots which is uh, a mutual aid network of uh, people who are trying to create radical social change and using cooperatives as bases for their uh, activities or as vehicles for their activities so, so radical roots is a network yeah yeah, were you a founder member? No, no. Radical Roots was started in the mid '80s. Right. Um, when, when actually, when housing benefit was introduced by Margaret Thatcher, and that enabled for the first time people to create uh, a cooperative landlord that could accept um, benefits level incomes, because previously benefits couldn't be paid to landlords, which obviously Margaret Thatcher was keen to introduce. But that that created the possibility for autonomous cooperatives, housing cooperatives. Oh, right, okay. and, it, and that meant we could be the kinds of co-ops that um, really were focused on, on radical social change rather than just on cheap housing. There are, there are plenty of older housing cooperatives, but they are, have always had to be uh, regulated by the state. They would have depended on income from the housing corporation as it was then. So they had a lot less autonomy over their living conditions and who they accepted into membership. Uh, and what they could charge even as rent, whereas autonomous co-ops can pretty much do what they like. Um, we're, we have a focus on being uh, affordable uh, um, and accessible um, to people who are actively trying to change the world. And so, and so what, th what sort of thing, what sort of activities, what sort of things do um, Radical Roots do? So Radical Roots is a mutual aid network for radical cooperatives, and it means that uh, we create a political framework. We meet four times a year. Uh, we have gatherings four times a year and at those gatherings co-ops can get together and really share ideas of how they live together, how they work together, uh, how they manage to interact with capitalism and with the state. Um, uh, in the early 90s, I think, um, Radical started making loans to its member cooperatives. And that has continued, so that enables that has enabled the, the buying of um, uh, properties for housing co-ops. We also help co-ops develop their financial uh, plans. We have written publications like how to set up a housing co-op, how to set up a workers' co-op, how to set up a social centre. At every gathering, we train people who come in consensus decision making and facilitation. We offer financial literacy training. Um, 
we have also been doing an amount of lobbying. So whenever legislation comes in that, that affects housing co-ops where it really shouldn't because it's aimed at private landlords, um, we we are able because of joint forces to to come up with um, legal frameworks and suggested legislation to amend that and find exemptions for us for our co-ops. We've worked on developing model tenancies. So all of this is done within a framework of consensus and common ownership, in other words, no individual ownership. And so we really bring that philosophical, political view. We kind of tweak the bureaucracy of the state to, to make it more collective. Yeah. And we've got, we've got your, uh, your, um, your booklets on how to uh, set up a, a workers co-op and a housing co-op on, on our site. And I'll, I'll, um, Great. I'll, I'll put links to that in the description underneath the video. Um, Great. The, um, so if somebody's thinking of setting up a housing co-op or a working co-op, are you, are you a good, is Radical Roots a good uh, first port of call? Definitely. Uh, I would say the books are a good first port of call. Um, uh -huh. Yes, so Radical Roots um, doesn't have a great deal of capacity. Nobody in it is really paid, so... We don't have a huge amount of capacity for being a general advice service, although we do our best. Um, the books are pretty helpful. Um, there are, however, I would say Cooperatives UK is a good yeah. port of call. Um, or just Google around and find co-ops near you and try contacting them and talking to them. Yeah. Um, there are also um, quite a few people in the country involved in... Um, giving advice to cooperatives um, we call those cooperative development bodies and there's a number around the country so I'm part of one that's called cooperative business consultants um, we we are scattered around the country but mainly in the north uh, and there are others um, which are filled with I would have to say cooperators are really are the most helpful people <laughs> so you'll, you'll almost certainly have a good long conversation about whatever it is you want to do before there's any discussion about whether you can afford to pay them yeah. um obviously everybody wants to get by but um i think mostly we just want co-ops to be set up yeah we um we became a co-op recently um and we uh I, I just chatted with mark simmons and he was really really helpful and yeah. he didn't even charge anything he just told told us how to do it and we've done it and and now we work as co-op but platform six has launched recently hasn't it so that that's that might be a very useful um first point yes um platform six as i understand it is a a um a kind of website and a, a forum for co-op developers to exchange advice and co-op developers is a very broad term. It means anyone who's ever helped anyone else <laughs> who's ever said, oh, yeah, I know about that sort of thing. Let me let me direct you to some resources. Let me tell you what I know about what it was like in mine. If you want to do more of that stuff, whether you're getting paid for it or not, and however experienced you are or not, then, then get involved in Platform 6 is a good idea. Um, it's not necessarily the first port of call for someone who's who's – not sure whether a co-op is right for them and right for their um, their ideas. I would say Co-ops UK is probably the, the better place to go for that. Right, I'll say it was platform six is for when you've decided you definitely want to be a co-op and you and you're you're going to take that step. Yes, yeah. Or if you, I'd say platform six is actually for people who are swapping 
swapping advice to each other about being co-op developers. I've come across this case. Does anyone know anything else about it? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly it aims to support the development of the co-op movement. Um, so, and you can be a member of Platform 6 without necessarily engaging with the forum. And partly what Platform 6 wants to do is to raise money uh, that can be given or lent to help people set up co-ops or develop their co-ops. Uh -huh. um, so uh, you've had a bit of an adventure recently. Um, yeah. could, you, could you just tell us about, give us an overview of what you did? Yeah, I mean, very quickly, uh, my aim was to tour America and Canada meeting um, people involved in uh, radical economic projects. I was particularly interested in how the, the radical cooperatives managed to survive in capitalism and whether uh, any cooperatives were managing to engage with social currencies and alternative currencies. Uh, and I was also interested in um, the Democracy at Work network, which is a, a, a network of worker cooperators and peer advisors who are both working in co-ops and giving advice at the same time and, and how they were managing to keep that network going. So kind of infrastructural things and how the co-op movement was supporting itself, I was interested in. Yeah. But um, the key uh, element that I think you're interested in <laughs> is that I don't, or I don't fly, I try to avoid flying. And uh, so I decided to go by sailboat um, as a low carbon way of getting there. Um, uh, I knew that that would mean probably going from Spain uh, or the Canary Islands, um, and it also would mean um, getting a, a, a special visa. And so what actually happened in the end was that I waited for this special visa in Barcelona for about two months. So I spent quite a lot of time researching courts in Barcelona as well. Um, of which there are a lot, there are a lot around the... Um, Catalonia is absolutely filled with co-ops and cooperative spirit. It is really an incredibly inspiring place to be. And their political centre is, is just way more radical than our political centre. And yeah, so things that, are, that feel very radical over here are pretty commonplace over there. So it's interesting. It's hard to know what lessons you can really learn. You can see how people do things, but you don't know whether they would work over here or not just because... Um, the, the, the mainstream culture is 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 more individualistic and less cooperative here so so we'd have to you have to think of um, different ways to kind of encourage behaviors here than are necessary there yeah. um, after Barcelona I went to the Canary Islands and that was really exciting as well uh, filled with again <laughs> filled with um, anarchists and and uh, people uh, fighting evictions and people setting up various anti-gentrification and, and anti-touristification um, projects that was really exciting and then and did you get a boat to the canary islands as well well this was it because i'd had to spend so long uh waiting for my visa i was actually really really late in the season and i couldn't find um a boat from mainland spain so i took a ferry from oh. Welva to the Canary Islands. Um, but from, but from the Canary Islands to the state, to or to North America, you you sort of you sort of hitchhiked on sailing boats, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. Sort of hitchhiked, slightly <laughs> expensively. <laughs> There's a the Canary Islands are the place where everybody who is doing the transatlantic um, sailing stops for provisioning and for fixing their boats because you have to fix your boat and paint your boat all the time. 
very expensive business. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of people there looking for lifts and there's lots of people there looking for crew because the other thing is lots of people could manage the sailing on their own if only they didn't have to stay awake so much of the time. So people are looking for right. uh, people, um, crew, like you don't have to be particularly experienced. You just have to be prepared to, to do your bit, even if you, you know, you'll learn it pretty quickly. You have to be prepared right. to stay up at night and do watches. You have to be prepared for being stuck on a boat for 25 days with complete strangers and getting off is not an option yeah yeah there's all sorts of interesting dynamics around that what sort of jobs what sort of tasks did you do um well i was quite seasick the whole way <laughs> um luckily for me uh, although i wouldn't normally call this lucky the boat that i was on didn't have autopilot and didn't have a wind vane so it needed somebody to steer it needed steering 24 7 um, and really as a seasick person what you want to do is look at the horizon the whole time so those things go quite well together I did a lot of steering right um, the other things that you would expect to be doing are cooking and washing up and cleaning mostly um, when you're sailing across the Atlantic from east to west you're mostly with the trade winds so um, there's a, not as much sailing like there's not as much raising and lowering of sails as much tacking and moving moving you know moving the sail from port to starboard there's not as much of that as you might think and certainly as much as in other other journeys um so that's kind of a good starter trip in a way it's a lot easier to do that trip sailing wise than it is to get from england to the you know <laughs> to spain like the north sea is pretty choppy the irish sea is terrifying but the atlantic apart from it taking a lot longer is is generally quite benign, pretty benign. Mm -hmm. It's just so, like a, such a. It sounds like such a fantastic trip. Yeah, I mean it is. It's it's. I, I'm going to be honest. I'm not a sailor. I wouldn't choose to sail for fun. I sailed because I didn't want to fly, and right. I really, really wanted to go to the states. Um, but it does give you a sense that you don't need to rely on the corporate world in order to get. Yeah. you know, across the Atlantic or in order to get anywhere. You just need to have a mate with a boat um, who, who wants to do the same thing that you want to do. Yeah, I've talked to people who, I've, I've talked with people who, um, they're, they're very sort of, you know, anti-corporate, they're very into sustainability, and yet they still think it's okay to fly on holiday to Thailand or South America. And it's like, well, A, you're, you're contributing to climate change massively. I mean, the aviation industry is only set to grow. Yeah usually over the coming decades and also yeah. there's there's no way you can fly without giving money to the you know airline corporate airlines and the corporate yeah. oil industry it's it's unavoidable but i don't know it's, i mean it's the same it's the same as cycling across land really it's cycling is pretty much the only way that you could travel over land without you know cycling and walking without giving vast amounts of money to to corporations and that's just because of our dependence on fuel. There's, you know, unless you're creating your own yeah. biofuel somehow, um, or you've got the infrastructure to create some electric powered car and, and all the panels that go with it. I don't, I don't see how else you can, you can travel long distances at all other than yeah. horses and your own feet and the wind. I mean, 
part of the reason people want to travel long distances anyway is to, you know, to go on holiday from the place they live in because uh, you know it's, it's not very nice they don't like it very much so they want to get away from it and go on holiday instead of sort of building really sort of people friendly and beautiful communities to actually live in so you don't have to try and escape them all the time that, yeah that's definitely one aspect but I think it's also reasonable like well people love traveling it's not just to get away it's also to experience these things and I and I think actually the way around that is not is not to say well city breaks are the way to go it's it's more we need to incorporate into our culture the capacity for people to take a long time out of their lives and go to other places and experience other ways of life because tourism is also not ideal not just because of the travel but because you don't really get to experience other cultures you get to experience what the tourist industry wants you to experience and the the really popular places are becoming hell holes aren't they really i mean the the number of people crammed into venice is yeah just a waste of time. Well, and that's exactly what I was experiencing in the Canary Islands and in the Caribbean, you know, everywhere. Uh, in the Canary Islands, there's a big campaign, and in Barcelona as well, campaigns against Airbnb and in New Orleans, against Airbnb, against development um, of yeah. ports and airports and infrastructure and better highways and big hotels. Yeah. This is happening everywhere. And you're like, surely there are enough hotels for all the people already in the world. We don't need we don't need to be buying to, to be like destroying more and more landscapes and building more and more stuff. Experiences in the Caribbean were really similar. You, you would be in this tiny island with all this kind of very low rise architecture, um, small huts, cabins, um, and then the giant, the giant hotel ship would pull in, which is like, it's like a tower block. It's it dominates the whole island. It's yeah. it's like twenty or thirty stories high above this tiny island, and it's just so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really strange. 